Well, hello there. Richard Tubb here with another episode of Tub Talk, the podcast for IT consultants. And let me tell you, today's episode is a zinger. I'm joined today by Fabian Vossa, the Chief Technology Officer at MZSoft. If you're unfamiliar with MCSoft, then they provide premium internet security software for the home and business user. MCSoft is a very rapidly growing company and a leading supplier of behavior analysis technology used in cybersecurity. Fabian himself helps develop the anti-malware technologies and ransomware decryptors for MCSoft. Plus, he leads MCSoft's ransomware recovery services. More on that later. Fabian has been described by the BBC as the best ransomware expert, and his work at NCSoft has cost ransomware groups over a billion US dollars in lost ransoms over the last 10 years. That's got to be applauded. Fabian, it is a thrill to have you on Tub Talk. How are you doing? I'm quite well. How are you? Very well indeed. And when I said it's a thrill, it genuinely is. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Now, where do you join us from today? Um, I'm located in London at the moment. Yeah. And just before we went on air, you said to me, look, if we get interrupted by my, uh, you've got two pet cats, haven't you? And I said, don't worry about it. I've got pet cats as well. Not a problem. <laughs> what are your cat's names there? Oh, my cats, are, my cat's names are actually um, Emerald and Sapphire. Aww. And yes, they are named after the Pokemon games. So. <laughs> Well, if we get interrupted by cats today, no problem at all. This is a podcast for everybody. Now, let's jump straight in. Can you describe a little bit more about the work that you do at MCSoft? What does it entail? Um, so most of my day is pretty much typical CTO stuff, right? I think the aspect of my work that's most, um, most interesting to the listeners, most likely my work in uh, ransomware, and um, there, my daily work entails helping a lot of uh, both business as well as home users recover the data for free. Um, and especially in the last couple of years, it's also helping ransomware victims who end up paying the ransom recover the data because it turns out just paying the ransom doesn't always get you your data back straight away. Um, often the tools that you get back from the ransomware threat actors can be quite buggy. Um, they may have issues uh, like um, stability issues. They may actually damage your data during the decryption. And all in, in all these types of cases, people tend to approach MCSoft and approach me in order for us to help them um, kind of salvage um, the situation. Yeah. Now, you, you've, you know, I described you earlier on, or the BBC described you as the best ransomware expert out there. Um, you are often approached by media to talk about, you know, different uh, subjects in the cybersecurity realm, ransomware. If somebody was listening to this and had never heard of ransomware before, how would you describe what it actually is? So personally, I think the term ransomware is quite descriptive because it kind of uh, sums up the essence uh, quite nicely. Essentially, ransomware is a type of malware um, that will take either your system or your data for ransom. Um, essentially, they will either lock you out of your system by like displaying like very prominent message or prominent uh, window on your system that you can't really close, that you can't get rid of, um, and in order for you to get rid of this, this particular window, 
um, you will have to pay a ransom. These, uh, so this particular case of ransomware is often called a screen locker. Mm-hmm. Screen lockers kind of were quite popular uh, in the light in yeah in the early 2010s. Um, but nowadays, they have been almost entirely replaced by a different kind of ransomware, which is the data encrypting kinds. Um, so data encrypting ransomware, or sometimes it's also being referred to as crypto malware, they will simply encrypt all your data on your system using strong encryption algorithms. And the ransomware threat actor, so essentially the people who are behind this ransomware attack, they will try to sell you the uh, encryption keys in order for you to be able to decrypt your data. Um, Nowadays, especially in the last one to two years, there has also been a completely new aspect to this. In many cases, the ransomware threat actors who, who infiltrated your network will also try to steal data from you and then use this data as additional leverage during the negotiations where essentially they will threaten to release the data that they stole if you don't pay. And unfortunately, um, it has become more and more common for a lot of companies who do have backups, for example, who are able to recover from the data being encrypted uh, to still pay the ransomware threat actors simply to prevent them from releasing the data. Now, Fabian, I'm going to ask you a loaded question here. So forgive me early on in our conversation, but you deal with some fairly, you know, rough situations. You see people um, in in pain and, uh, you know, businesses that suffer a great deal. So I hope this isn't a loaded question, but how would you describe the cyber criminals who dis- who deploy ransomware. What's your feelings towards them? Um, to be honest, my feelings are a little bit conflicted. The thing is, I sometimes actually get um, to talk to some of these uh, criminals who are behind these campaigns, right? Um, and as individuals, they tend to be quite empathetic. They tend to be almost nice people. Um, Most of them have quite, at least the ones I got to interact with, have somewhat tragic backstories. Um, And in a lot of cases, they tend or or, or they turn to cybercrime because they didn't have any other options. Now, on the other hand, especially once they start acting as like collective, which most ransomware threat actor groups are nowadays, um, they tend to act incredibly ruthless. They tend to uh, they tend to not care about the victims. Um, they, in many cases, also don't tend to care particularly about um, risking human lives. You have a lot of these groups, like Conti, for example, who have absolutely no moral uh, qualms. Or, yeah, I think it's qualms, right? Um, You have groups like Conti who have absolutely no moral qualms to hit hospitals during a pandemic, shutting down entire health systems like the Irish health system, for example, just a couple of months months ago. So it's like very conflicting. And I think you kind of do have to differentiate between 
a single person that is like acting as part of these um, ransomware threat actor groups and like the collective group in and of itself. Yeah. If you uh, don't mind me asking as well, I know that you relocated from Germany to the UK. It was a couple of years ago, right? Um, yeah, how about you, three years ago. About three years ago now. What prompted that? And, and do you mind me asking, how do you find the differences in security culture between the two countries? So um, I I moved to the UK mostly because it's like a lot easier to live anonymously within the UK. In Germany, um, we do have, since I am German, right? Um, in, in Germany, we do have a central register where every single person living within Germany has to register. This register, for example, includes your address and you are required by law to keep these records updated. Um, the downside is, is that essentially everybody who can claim an interest in finding out your address, which can be something, um, something simple like telling the municipality that you want to sue them or that they owe you money will hand out your address for like a very small fee unless you can well um, as long as you can provide um, the municipality with enough data that your record is the only one showing up after they typed in all the search data, uh, search data. Um, if that is the case they will essentially hand out your address which kind of becomes um, worrying for a person like me who had plenty of credible threats from ransomware threat actors as we do um, yeah as we do damage their core business model quite a bit and because we did quite a lot of damage to their business yeah so I mentioned earlier on you know MCsoft has cost ransomware groups over a billion US dollars in lost ransoms over the last 10 years it's very rare isn't it that we talk about how or we take pride in how we've cost other people uh, money but in this situation you know you are preventing ransoms from you know uh, over a billion dollars for for all types of organizations so you, you mentioned there obviously you know cyber criminals on the most part, um, see you as uh, somebody who is stopping them from making money. What? How would you describe your relationship with cyber criminals across the board? I don't think there's like much of a relationship. Mm. <laughs> um, in most cases, um, there certainly are some cyber criminals where just from like a professional point of view, um, there's almost some part of admiration when it comes to the ingenuity of some of them, especially when they come up with like very, very novel and technically sophisticated approaches um, for their malware. But in reality, um, most of them are quite amateurish. And what I, I personally find quite frightening is like how successful you can be as a cyber criminal without much technical sophistication to begin with. Yeah. Um, certainly people like that won't go around and like hack Google, right? But especially in like other um, public and um, yeah, public and commercial sectors where IT isn't the main business, um, think manufacturing, um, or even engineering to a certain degree, graphic design, like all these other business areas where even if you are rather unsophisticated attacker, you can still uh, find a lot of low-hanging fruit. 
um, just just look at the recent exchange of zero day vulnerability that was being found. And like still to this day, you can find hundreds, if not thousands of uh, unpatched exchange servers out there on platforms like Shodan um, that you can pretty much hack even if you are a complete amateur and like deploy your ransomware to. Yeah. And is it a case, you know, we've heard this term script kiddies before where they talk yeah. about there's there's tools being created that just make it easy for, for anybody with malicious intent to go for it. How prevalent is that nowadays, that idea that somebody can download a tool, a package tool that makes it easy for them to deploy ransomware? Is that the reality of the situation nowadays? Oh, 100%. And um, personally, I have the very strong belief that a lot of these tools who are often being marketed as like red teaming tools, think Cobalt Strike, for example, which is probably one of the core tools um, of every single ransomware threat actor group out there at the moment. Cobalt Strike, for those who don't necessarily know what it is, it's essentially um, like, uh, it's, it's, it's a, they claim they are a red teaming tool. Red teaming in IT security essentially means um, it kind of, the term kind of comes from war games where the military or other organizations try to go through attack and defense scenarios. And usually in these scenarios, you have like a red team who is the attacker and you have a defense team who is like the blue team, right? And these red teaming tools are essentially commercial tools, commercial toolkits that are specifically designed for these types of um, artificial scenarios that can be used by red teams within the company in order to attack a network, in order to infiltrate a network, in order to pretty much do whatever um, a ransomware threat actor would want to do, but in a very highly and technically sophisticated manner. So all a ransomware threat actor really needs to do is either um, pay the couple of thousands US dollars in order to obtain like a Cobalt Strike license, or, I mean, they are breaking the law already anyway, right? Just use like a pirated or leaked copy of Cobalt Strike and then use that in order to completely infiltrate a network that they gained access to. It's actually quite quite uh, frightening. These tools are incredibly easy to use. And in a lot of cases, when you kind of sign up with um, a ransomware as a service group like Conti, for example, they will hand you a complete set of manuals on how exactly you need to use those tools in order to completely infiltrate networks, in order to move laterally within a network. And for those who don't necessarily know what this lateral movement means is the lateral movement or like spreading lateral, lateral, laterally within a network essentially means that once you have access to a single machine because the uh, person using that machine opened your malicious email attachment or because you uh, were able to brute force the RDP login credentials for that particular machine, that you then use this machine as like a pivot point in order to spread to the entire rest of the network and gain control over all the other machines as well. And this process is to a large degree completely automated using tools like Cobalt Strike, AAD Find, and other um, red teaming tools. And they are incredibly easy to use. They are often available um, for free in form of like open source, or you can find leaked versions of the paid products. 
And it's honestly really, really frightening. And at least in my opinion, I also think that a lot of these companies producing these tools are a little bit disingenuous. Uh, yeah, yeah. Disingenuous thinking that only red teams and legitimate users are going to use the tools. Yeah, I can absolutely uh, see that. I mentioned earlier, what's your relationship with cyber criminals like? Now, you're known as an expert at breaking encryption coding that cyber criminals use to hack uh, these computer systems. Am I right in understanding, though, that you have actually been approached by cyber criminals in the past who have contacted you for help fixing faulty decryption keys because they want to sell that to a victim? It, it, would that be a, a correct statement? Um, yes, that actually has happened in the past. Um, ransomware threat actors, especially um, in the early days, they usually were only individuals kind of running the operations from their bedroom almost, right? Yeah. Um, so there was like quite a bit of interaction, especially in the early years. A lot of them actually follow my Twitter account. Um, and a lot of them do know that I genuinely care for the victims because I stated it many, many times. And I spend an, an excessive amount of hours at this point of my life trying to help victims recover the data. So um, in the past, it, ha it has happened on multiple occasions where ransomware threat actors actually contacted me and told me, hey, listen, um, our ransomware sometimes damages data during the encryption and we can't figure out how, can you help us, for example? Um, it's always kind of um, a moral conundrum, right? Yeah, because you must be wondering, do you, do you help the criminal but if you don't, that's severely going to damage the victim's data. And presumably you don't have access to you know, the, the, the victim's data directly yourself. Exactly. That's like the moral conundrum that I usually face. Because obviously I don't want to help the criminals. But on the other hand, the criminals often outright tell me, yeah, they're not going to stop what they are doing. So I can pick between they will just trash the data of like 10 out of 100 victims and they will just keep going on. Um, and, oh yeah, I can help them. But then I essentially may even be legally liable because I helped a ransomware threat actor kind of perfect and improve their ransomware, which may make me liable in some jurisdiction. Yeah. So um, my general approach is that I don't necessarily give them the exact information that they need, but I tend to give certain hints, usually in the form of certain documentation pages for the APIs they use that outline how to do it properly. Um, it's Ultimately, it's just like a really, really difficult situation. And it's a situation that I hope nobody else will ever get into. Um, because, yeah, you kind of have to weigh the interests of the victim towards, like, helping helping ransom, ransomware um, threat actors, which isn't, like, an easy equation. Yeah, absolutely. We've talked about your move from Germany to the UK uh, for the reasons that you explained, you know, pretty much being able to fly under the radar a little bit better. I know as a company, MCSoft, you've got, you know, several dozen cybersecurity professionals who are scattered all over the globe. 
and I also know you're extremely careful, you know, to stay under uh, the under the barrier, really, to to stay out of uh, contact. I understand you don't hold meetings in one place that would make you uh, vulnerable. Are there any other steps that you take to make sure that you and your colleagues are uh, as safe as safe can be and, and fly under the radar? So we do take quite a few steps. Well, one of the most important steps for us is actually that we aren't particularly public about our work in general. Um, one aspect for that is obviously that we don't want to tip off ransomware threat actors, but the other one is also to protect our employees. Um, now, personally, I also use VPNs quite a bit, especially when it comes to um, testing new ransomware samples, when I do dynamic analysis, for example, which often involves detonating a ransomware payload within a virtual environment, um, making sure that my operational security is top-notch, that my IP address doesn't leak out um, in case the ransomware payload kind of contacts a central command and control server. In the past, there also often have been attempts to kind of figure out where I live using IP trackers. Um, one of these incidents was one Twitter account sort of tweeting base64 encoded messages to me, and one of them kind of included links. And I'm not entirely sure what their motive was, but my assumption is that they tried to get me to click the link kind of kind of um, poke my curiosity, right? I mean, yeah. suddenly if you get um, a tweet from, a, from an account that is named exactly like your own account with just a number afterwards, and it's like base64 encoded, and it was almost like, like, like a little bit of a puzzle. And the end result is like a URL. And if you're dealing with like naturally cur curious person like me, then the first instinct is to just click on it, right? <laughs> And I did click on it, however, um, only through a VPN and Tor and not necessarily from my home uh, right. network. And yes, we also um, use our own security software, which may seem obvious and probably is, but it kind of gives you a certain degree of confidence, mostly because we know um, what our... Uh, security software is capable of since we are working every single day on it and are constantly improving it. So um, it gives like a certain degree of safety to us as well. Yeah. If you don't mind me asking, and for the benefit of uh, listeners here, uh, uh, you and I talked a little bit before we came on air, and I think it's very clear to anybody listening that you're a very positive, you're a very uh, upbeat person. If you don't mind me asking on a personal level, you see some, you know, pretty horrible things. Uh, uh, you see um, perhaps the, the the worst version of human beings that uh, uh, can be out there. You're targeted uh, quite often. How do you remain so positive and upbeat when you are faced with, you know, so much negativity and so much of the uh, the poor side of human nature? So my gut instinct is to tell you lots and lots of drugs. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's probably not the most professional answer, right? Probably um, not, but you can go with I that do, if you choose. <laughs> I, do, I, I, do, I do see a therapist on, a, on an almost uh, weekly basis um, to help with my mental health because I do actually get to interact with a lot of... Um, with a lot of desperate people. And yeah. over time, it kind of wears on you. I mean, the most 
the most devastating case or the most that I have experienced in um, like recent month, months was someone who quite literally contacted me from a hospital. They, their small family-owned business got hit by ransomware um, and the person was under so much stress that they actually suffered a heart attack. Oh, goodness. Um, and it's, it's incredibly devastating. And it's not the only scenario that I have seen where people's life were impacted in an incredibly negative way. And just dealing with all this negativity, you kind of need a shrink in order to get through it. Yeah. Um, however, um, on the other side, we also have like an insurmountable amount of uh, positive feedback lots of thank you emails, lots of positivity that we get back from victims that we were able to help, where we were able to uh, decrypt the data and in turn where we were able to save their businesses and their livelihood. And often even the um, essentially the livelihood of all their employees. Um, there's like a Another aspect, um, especially recently, there have been a lot of voices of um, politicians who aren't necessarily particularly familiar with the ransomware uh, problem in general, where they were demanding to make ransom payments illegal, for example, which is incredibly short-sighted because in a lot of cases, companies don't pay a ransom because they feel like paying ransom. In a lot of cases, they pay the ransom because not paying the ransom would almost certainly mean their business going under, um, which in turn would also mean in a lot of cases that a lot of people are going to lose their jobs. And I can empathize with every single company director who is trying to save the livelihood, not only of themselves, but also um, of their employees and the families who depend on the income, right? So, um, yeah, personally, I'm not a huge fan of trying to outrule or outlawing uh, ransom payments. It's only going to sort of um, force all these ransom payments uh, even further into the underground because companies are still going to pay. Um, any sort of fines or fees that would have to be paid because like a certain rule or certain law was being broken will just become kind of part of the equation on whether or not ransom should be paid to sort of um, save the company. The same way companies already do that uh, whenever they kind of violate regulations or violate uh, certain laws where just to maximize the profit margin, if the profit mar if if the increase in profit is like high enough, they will just take the fines and it becomes part of their their equation pretty much. Uh, so the only option you really have is to uh, threaten them with jail time. And do you really want to kind of jail or imprison company director who tried to save the jobs of all their employees? I don't think that's that's right to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's a difficult situation, but I absolutely agree with what you said. I think it would just uh, drive it um, underground, really, and that's not something I want to say. A public thank you to you because 
you know, yourself, uh, directly helping some people who are in terrible situations here, other people like you who are helping to raise education levels in the industry, because, you know, I think this is the way to do it, to help people understand how they can protect themselves and uh, to directly help people who are in these situations. So thank you. Really appreciate everything you are doing within the industry. If we can change pace and let's talk a little bit about MCSoft as a company. Um, so the way I understand it, there's really two sides to the business here. You've got cybersecurity products for home and business users, and you've also got a, ransom, a ransomware decryption service or ransomware um, safety service that you offer there as well. There's a lot of cybersecurity products out in the market. You know, the listeners to this show are the owners of managed service provider businesses. They are IT professionals. They are fairly savvy and see uh, all the cybersecurity products are out there. Why would someone choose MCSoft over any of the other products on the market? So the most common feedback that we have heard from MSPs are probably the fact that our products are incredibly easy to use for them and they are incredibly convenient. Um, we have sort of the benefit that in particular, our cloud platform is relatively young um, and it was designed from the very ground up for, with MSPs in mind, meaning it's like incredibly easy for MSPs to uh, set our products up and start rolling it out to their, to their customers. We have a lot of co-branding options, for example, which makes it incredibly easy for them to sort of give it the personal touch. They can replace the support and contact details within the product, for example, so they can be the first point of contact uh, whenever their clients run into any issues. Um, of course, due to our deep expertise within the ransomware field, our product is incredibly effective when it comes to preventing ransomware um, infections and ransomware incidents in the first place. That kind of comes with the territory, right? Um, if you do hire some of the uh, world's foremost experts in ransomware, like uh, my colleague Michael Gillespie and um, to a certain degree myself as well, even though I, I really feel kind of uncomfortable like taking up that mantle and call myself an expert because it kind of goes against everything in my being to, to, to call myself that. But I've been called ransomware experts by a lot of other uh, um, uh, by a lot of other people. So I kind of came to accept the title over time. Um, then yes, our, our product is incredibly effective when it comes to ransomware um, detection and ransomware prevention. Um, now, another aspect that is often being highlighted is, is that um, in almost every field, uh, it's almost inevitable that eventually you will run into any, any sort of issues, right? And especially if you do partner um, as an MSP with um, a large security provider, um, it can often feel like a little bit isolating when you try to reach out for support, when you do have a problem and you do need their help. Um, you will often get funneled through like different levels of support and um, it can be quite frustrating getting to the person who can actually help you, which um, isn't the case for us. Like you will always be able to talk to like a human being instead of like a male robot or something um, within minutes um, of you contacting us either through live chat. Um, and in general, you will also be able to interact with 
um, the experts and the developers who are actually creating the software um, if you really need to because your problem kind of warrants it, which is somewhat unusual within the space, if I may say so. So it, it really is the ease of use, the fact that our entire product is being built with MSPs in mind and was from the very beginning targeted towards MSPs, our deep expertise within ransomware and the fact that you can get um, high quality support often within minutes um, and who will try to solve your issues, um, which in my opinion, at least sets us apart over the rest. Yeah. Are you uh, very connected with the managed service provider industry? For instance, this earlier this year, we've had two big breaches, uh, you know, with SolarWings and uh, Kaseya. Uh, were you uh, a part of the managed service provider community there trying to uh, help MSPs have been impacted? Yes, actually, Kaseya partnered with us in order for us to provide our decryption services to all the MSP partners. So, if you were affected by the Kaseya attack, for example, or if some of your clients were affected by the Kaseya attack, then you may want to reach out to Kaseya and they will um, essentially forward you to us uh, so that we can provide you with the means of decrypting the data. Wonderful. Well, I thank you again for, for being a part of that on behalf of the MSP industry. I want to talk about the uh, the ransomware recovery services that you offer because I know you you know you you give very freely. You make um, some services available for free, don't you? But presumably, there's also a, a commercial service that you offer here at MCSoft. Can you tell me a little bit more about the recovery services? Um. So the recovery services really have two, two, two parts or two aspects to it. Um, one part that is entirely for free is, is that if you become a victim of ransomware, you can reach out to us, um, provide us with some of the information about the incident. Ideally, this would include the ransomware payload, which is essentially like the executable file that was executed by the threat actors on the network that encrypted the data. But if you don't have it or if you can't find it during your forensic analysis, then in many cases, we can also operate based on a couple of the encrypted files and the ransom node. And we will essentially tell you um, what is this ransomware? Is there a way to recover the data that doesn't involve paying a ransom, um, but also a lot of general intelligence. Like, have we seen this particular threat actor kind of uh, take your money and just run without providing you with the means of decryption? Or is this ransomware known um, to damage data? And in many cases, we can even tell you exactly how data will be damaged. It becomes incredibly useful for victims when it comes to deciding whether or not to pay ransom to know beforehand which of their data they will never get back because it was irreparably um, yeah, damaged. Got it, yeah. So, um, and all this sort of information we will provide entirely for free. So there really is no reason not to reach out to us if you, you or one of your clients got hit by ransomware. Now, the other aspect is, is that if we can do help you recover your data, or if you did pay the ransom and you have trouble um, decrypting the data using the threat actor tools, whether that is because you don't particularly trust the tool. I mean, you always have to keep in mind, these are criminals, right? You don't necessarily know 
that this .exe file that they handed you back is actually going to do what they told you it would be doing. Um, so there's a lot of skepticism on, well, on the side of the uh, victims when it comes to running these tools. And in a lot of cases, they will actually hand these decryptors to like a digital forensic or like an incidents response company who will then do like a thorough analysis to make sure there aren't any backdoors, um, which is understandable and is honestly the right thing to do. However, the alternative option is to just come to us and we will give you our implementation of the decryption tool. Um, where you don't have to worry about where where's this code coming from. And in, a, and in a lot of cases, our tools are not only a lot safer and a lot more stable and a lot more um, easy to deploy at scale, but they are also like a lot faster than the threat actor tools. It's actually one of the reasons why the Irish Health, Health Service um, opted to use our tools in order to decrypt the HSE data. Um, because our tool turned out to be about like three times as fast as um, the Conti decryption tool. So um, it's an absolute no-brainer uh, to use um, our tools over threat actor tools, because in a lot of cases, we sort of shave off hours, sometimes even days, or in particularly large cases, even weeks of the recovery time, which... Yeah. Um, yeah, immediately uh, gives a victim like a return on, uh, uh, sorry, a return of investment, right? Yes, that absolutely makes sense. So I, I want to ask the question I have dealt with, unfortunately, you know, a number of MSPs, a number of end users, uh, small businesses over the years that have been hit with ransomware. And I don't know if this matches up with your experience, Fabian, but um, it's it's almost like a life event for them, similar to you know uh, a breakup of a relationship or a death, uh, things like that. They tend to go through different stages, like anger and grief, and then acceptance and things like that. So, if someone is hit with ransomware, what is your advice on how they should deal with it? Um. That certainly kind of depends on like two different things. If you as an MSP got hit, then I have very, very bad news for you. Because in our experience, and I don't want to sound like too alarmist on this, right? Sure. But in our experience, if you as an MSP got hit, and if you're... RMM tools were used to encrypt all your clients, which has happened many, many times before, and which is probably unfortunately going to happen many, many times after we had this conversation as well. In that particular case, um, you will probably use your, uh, lose your, your entire business. Um, in our experience, you will in most cases, lose your entire client base or the majority of your client base pretty much overnight. Because all your clients, they will go out and they will look for um, a different provider um, because they will blame you for the incident. And not to sound too harsh, but in many cases, they are right in blaming you because in most cases, the way these threat actors gained access to your MSP network and gained access to your platforms were poor security practices in the first place. Right. 
Uh, and in general, I tend not to victim blame or victim shame when it comes to ransomware. But I think, especially as an MSP, you have you don't get that luxury from me because people hire you for your expertise in IT. And this expertise nowadays also includes expertise within uh, best security practices, meaning if you don't have MFA enabled, like multi-factor authentication enabled on all your RMM um, tools that you use, then you are quite literally doing it wrong and you are asking for trouble. Great. If you don't patch your VPN appliances, uh, if you don't um, secure the remote access you do have to all your clients' networks or even to your own network, then you are negligent to a much, much um, more severe and higher degree than a home user forgetting to secure the network or like even a company that isn't within the IT field securing, securing the network is, at least in my book. You have a certain responsibility as an MSP to keep up to date and people hire you because they assume that you keep on top of um, IT developments um, and in particular keep on top on developments within the IT security field. So at least in my opinion, it's your absolute responsibility to do your best in this regard. Agreed. And, you know, beyond the the uh, standard measures that we talked about that everybody should be looking at, you know, multi-factor authentication, strong passwords, um, encrypted data, VPNs and things like that, that an MSP should be deploying as standard. And of course, keeping their own internal network treated like a client, keeping it patched up to date. Is there any advanced tips that you would give for MSPs listening to say, okay, that's your belt and braces approach. Here's the next level. Here are some of the things that you can do uh, to make yourself a very difficult target for cyber criminals. Um, try to keep things separated as much as possible. Um, there's this, this trend to single sign-on and don't get me wrong, I completely understand why a company uh, who has lots of employees who aren't necessarily working in IT tries to, to use single sign-on, right? However, especially within uh, the IT field, and especially if you're an MSP, single sign-on can be quite devastating. Um, in a lot of cases, one of the prime targets nowadays how ransomware threat actors will breach into networks is through the VPN appliance. People kind of tend to forget that these VPN appliances are nothing else but just servers and like a weird form factor that need to be patched, that need to be updated. And to be quite honest with you, in a lot of cases, it's also the fault of the manufacturer of these uh, appliances who don't apply, uh, uh, who, who don't even allow their customers to patch these appliances themselves, but instead where like a technic, where a technician has to show up, right, to install the patches, which is completely stupid in my, in my mind, if I'm honest with you. But yeah, that's just sort of the uh, environment we live in and that that we have to deal with. Now, if this VPN appliance is kind of uh, hooked into your your Active Directory. Um, so you have fancy single sign-on, then it is quite literally every time your VPN appliance gets gets exploited or gets gets hacked pretty much, you quite literally hand them the entire keychain to your 
to the rest of your network. Because from there, they can grab like all the Active Directory credentials, do their fancy brute force attacks in order to kind of uh, figure out the password hashes, right? Um, and then move laterally from your VPN appliance into the rest of the network. Um, and the more you are kind of relying on single sign-on and the more you are sort of relying on Active Directory, um, the easier it is to kind of lose control over your entire IT infrastructure just because one single element that was hooked up to it got compromised. So try, in my opinion, try to sort of avoid using single sign-on and try to keep uh, try to keep things separate as much as possible, even down to like a network level. Um, segregating networks is one of the most most effective ways in order to um, make it more difficult for ransomware threat actors once they sort of broken into your network to move laterally and to kind of jump from like one compromised part of the network into other parts of the network that haven't been compromised yet. Um, in general, just assume not, try not to put like all your... Um, what is the exact phrase? Try not to put all your eggs into the basket of trying to prevent the access in the first place, but just assume that you will get breached and that your clients will get breached eventually. It's just a matter of time. Um, it just takes like a quick slip up. It may not even be your fault, like in, in the case of Kaseya or, or SolarWinds, right? Um, you kept up to date. They were the ones who got breached, and then their tools were being used to um, deploy malware to the network. And it wasn't necessarily your fault in the first place. So just assume that at one point, one of your uh, one of the tools that are the tools of your trade will get exploited, will have a bug that allows attackers to attack the network. So just assume that there will be a breach, and try to figure out ways to make it incredibly difficult for uh, attackers to jump from like one system to the next by segregating everything, by keeping uh, things as separate as possible, even if it may mean um, that it might be slightly more inconvenient for you as an MSP. And yeah. again, don't get me wrong, I completely understand why like for a normal company who isn't working in IT, this won't be practical, right? Um, if you are like a manufacturing company trying to expect that your office workers handle like dozens of different credentials isn't going to happen and it will actually lower the security however you as an msp and you as a person who knows what they are doing you probably do know how to use a password manager and you are very very capable of um handling multiple credentials for your multiple clients and your multiple systems so it's uh, not too much to yeah, it, it's not too much to ask from you. Yeah, agreed. And uh, uh, firstly, thank you for the advice that you gave there. Some of the advice that you, you gave, my background is in corporate IT, uh, you know, big corporations and stuff. And uh, it's interesting. We always used to take an approach of segmenting uh, networks, segmenting services as much as possible. Um, but when I moved into the MSP world and ran my own managed service provider business, certainly at the small, uh, medium-sized business end, that 
uh, elements of segmentation seems to completely disappear. Presumably, for comfort purposes, it's a, it's a lot easier, you know, just to have a, an entire network segment as opposed to multiple and not to keep services separate. But I do think for every MSP listening to this, definitely listen to the advice you've heard here today. It's time to to up the game because uh, MSPs are being targeted by cyber criminals. You are the key holders, you know, to this whole um, uh, range of client services. So if you get uh, hacked, then it's going to be your clients who pay the price as well. Uh, Fabian, how can MSPs help to educate their clients about ransomware? Because you and I both know, you know, we can put in place all of the technical measures that we can, but it's still not going to uh, prevent you know uh, somebody clicking on the wrong link or somebody um, uh, doing something they they've been told not to do. How can we educate uh, clients to you know to prevent and to mitigate their risk of getting ransomware? Um, education certainly is like the most difficult um, aspect to it. Um, because if if we had figured out like very effective ways to educate our clients and to educate users, then to be quite honest with you, malware and ransomware in general, well, ransomware and malware in general, uh, would be much less of an issue than it is. Yeah. Um, we still haven't found like the right mix yet. Um, what I can do recommend though is that there are. Um, incredibly great resources that MSPs can use in order to first educate themselves about ransomware and how to protect themselves from it, and then try to hand down this, this sort of knowledge to their clients. Can and, you mention, uh, forgive me for interrupting, can you mention any of those resources that you'd recommend for, for listeners? Yeah. Um, one of uh, these resources, for example, is the No More Ransom Project who has quite a bit of information on their website about how people usually tend to get into um, the networks and how to protect yourself uh, effectively. Um, there's also our blog, for example, where we often do have articles that are specifically targeted towards MSPs and their clients um, to just keep them up to date about the latest TTPs, which are the techniques, tactics, and procedures used by ransomware threat actors in order to gain access, just to kind of give you an idea what to look out for when you're seeing, uh, when you're checking events for your um, for your clients, for example, if you are an MSSP, for example. Um, but also, if if you just check out weird warnings within your RMM software about like bizarre windows, event log entries that are showing up, um, which is in general quite helpful for a lot of um, MSPs. Now, last but not least, um, they're also kind of, um, last but not least, there are now also a lot of resources provided by your local governments in regards mm. to uh, ransomware. For example, the um, Scottish government, they released a very thorough ransomware playbook that companies can use in order to kind of mold their own playbook around on how to deal with ransomware or a ransomware incident. And it's honestly one of the things that I would recommend every MSP to have 
and maybe even to suggest to their clients um, that they should invest some time into doing like tabletop exercises and coming up with um, a handbook or like an incidents response plan on how are we going to handle a ransomware attack. Um, in a lot of cases, a lot of victims, they kind of struggle figuring out which systems do we need to restore and which order in order to restore operation. Um, and I can tell you like the worst time you have to come up with uh, plans like this is during the actual incident because your anxiety levels will be through the roof. Um, there will be customers breathing down your neck. There will be your own employees breathing down the neck, asking you constantly, when, when will we be able to work again? There will be the management of the company breathing down your neck because they, they are just pretty much seeing how like all their profits are going down the drain and how they are hemorrhaging money left and right uh, while the entire network is down. So really, uh, take the time. Um, you can look up the um, ransomware playbook um, of the Scottish government. Go through this, and it gives you like a lot of ideas about kind of, um, and it will give you like a lot of ideas about um, what to think about before an actual incident happens. Uh, an actual actual incident happens. Um, there are also, in many cases, especially in like more specialized industry, there are a lot of like legal requirements and regulatory requirements. How, how do I even have to report this breach? Who do I have to report this breach to in order to not violate any, any sort of regulations, right? Um, but yeah, in, in general, it's, it's, it's very important to just be prepared before the ransomware sort of hits you and not trying to figure out as you things as you go when the ransomware is already within your network. Um, and this is especially true if you have like a lot of interdependent services within the network where you need one thing to run the other thing and that other thing won't run if like a third thing doesn't run. If, if for example, you don't even have like a very basic dependency map, of like what, uh, what depends on what other thing in your network, it will be incredibly difficult for you to sort of um, recover um, a network or sort of restore a network back into, um, yeah, back to a degree that, it, uh, that, that you're operational again, because your entire network will be down. You can't look up the dependencies um, when a network is ransomed you need to know the dependencies before it's being ransomed. Yeah. So those are often like struggles that we see. That absolutely makes sense. Preparation is key here. I'll give a shout out as well. The National Cyber Security Center here in the UK um, and NCSC, I think has done some really good work, um, really valuable stuff as well. So a great resource that can be used by anybody. You mentioned about dependencies and you, you know, you mentioned about interconnecting services there. I spoke to an MSP the other day about ransomware and uh, they said, oh, it's not really a concern for us because most of our data is kept in the cloud with services like Microsoft 365 and others. So let me ask you, Fabian, do you, does moving your data to the to the cloud help keep you safe? Um, it does to a certain degree. It's certainly like a lot more difficult for a ransomware threat actor to kind of 
um, attack your data in the cloud. However, they're like different degrees to it, right? If you, if like moving your data to the cloud means that you are using Azure AD instead of a local domain controller, then it's not particularly going to help you. Um, if it means that you also mirror your data to the cloud, um, for example, that you have a local backup appliance within your network and that also mirrors, and, and this appliance gets mirrored to the cloud, then it sort of depends. Um, ransomware threat actors usually spend a rather long time within a network before they pull the trigger and actually deploy the ransomware. The ransomware actually comes at the very tail end of the entire tech chain. At this point, uh, the ransomware threat actors probably know exactly what sort of security software you use. They will know exactly what sort of backups you're using. And in many cases, they will try to get access to those um, cloud dashboards, to those um, cloud management interfaces in order to mess with the backups there, or in order to delete the data in the cloud and things like that. So one of the um, tips that I can give MSPs in that regard, um, moving data to the cloud is a good idea, in my opinion, um, just for the redundancy and just for the general safety it can provide. Um, however, try to configure these cloud solutions in a way that makes hard deletes impossible, meaning you can't just go into the dashboard. And this, by the way, applies to you as the MSP managing the whole thing as well. If there is a way that you as an MSP can go into the dashboard and delete the backups so that they are truly deleted and can't be restored, then a ransomware threat actor will be able to do the same. So really go for solutions or configure your solutions in a way that these sorts of hard deletes are impossible that there are only soft deletes, which means, yeah, the data will be deleted within a certain time frame, like seven days, 30 days, but that data is never instantly deleted and that there's no way for you to actually instantly de delete the data. And I completely understand that this goes against like the very, um, that this goes against the very instinct of a lot of um, MSPs who have this, this, urge or need that they need to be able to have control about everything and that they need to be able to to be able to do anything even if it means their clients aren't aren't allowed to do that like deleting backups immediately and instantly and have the data removed immediately and instantly but it really is going to be used against you so just pick cloud solutions that allow you to configure them in a way that you're only able to soft delete data for example that makes sense. Uh, Fabian, I know you keep your uh, head under the uh, parapet for the most part, so you can't be uh, uh, targeted, but you must have friends and family who approach you and say, you know, can you help keep me safe and things? What advice do you give to the man on the street, end users, friends and family who are, you know, uh, aware of cyber criminals targeting them and uh, want to keep themselves safe? Are there any hints and tips, any tools, solutions that you can recommend to people? So for home users in particular, the biggest sort of um, initial access or like attack factor that they need to be concerned about when it comes to ransomware at least is pirated software. 
Um, there currently is only like one major ransomware family out there who's actively targeting home users, and they do that um, almost exclusively through um, infected torrents um, and infected pirate software downloads. So try not to pirate your software. Um, in many cases, there almost certainly is like a legal version or like an open source type of uh, software available for the purpose that you need. And if that doesn't, um, yeah, and if that particular software doesn't um, meet all your requirements, then consider just buying the professional yeah. version that you want to use, right? It feels crazy, doesn't it, in this day and age that we're telling yes. people, don't steal stuff because you will pay the price for it. But you're absolutely right. For every yes. bit yeah. of software out there, there is usually open source or free versions that do the job equally as well. So there's really, in my opinion, no excuse for people pirating this software anymore. I mean, let's be honest, like 99% of people don't need Photoshop, like, GIMP, for example, will, will do just fine. Uh, and most people don't need like all those features in Microsoft Office when like LibreOffice, for example, will do just fine. Um, and the list goes on and on. And I, I completely understand. I mean, I was I was young, right? I didn't have a lot of money. I still wanted to play my game. So I can completely understand in that regard. But even there, there are places like Humble Bundle, for example. Um, where you can often purchase game bundles for whatever price you want, really, as, as low as like one US dollar, where they just allow you to set the price you want to pay for them, and that's it. And there are like a lot of free-to-play games, and there are a lot of free games out there. Uh, there are often at places like, like Epic, uh, the Epic Game Launcher, for example, who, who just give you games for free, just there there really is no not necessarily a need for you to pirate your games or to pirate your software because we do get a lot of things for free and i also want to to mention um there's also like a different side of this there are a lot of free tools out there that are free because you are the person who's going to pay for you in form of your data yeah. Um, so always be somewhat conscious about, yeah, do I really want to, to trust this particular company? Uh, just assume that everything you do within that application is going to be shared with the maker of the freeware, uh, free, uh, sorry, with the maker of the freeware. Um, and just assume that they will know everything about you. And then kind of think, is the software worth it to you? Pretty much. Um, so be a little bit careful. Now, open source software, fortunately, has the advantage that they usually don't come with user tracking and um, pretty much privacy issues in general. So open source software usually is fine, but especially if you have like free offers from company that are closed source, that these these products often are being um, um, these these um, applications usually are. Um, paid for by advertisements, and that usually goes hand in hand with user profiles that are being generated of all the users and being sold to to advertisement com companies. Yeah. Um, otherwise, um, use an antivirus software. Um, Windows Defender, uh, to a certain degree, is fine, um, but there are like lots of other products out there who um, 
in many cases will do an even better job than Windows Defender does, like our product, for example. Um, then try to be somewhat skeptical. I, I always find it, find it find it kind of weird and kind of funny how people would never like let a stranger into their house, but for some reason they are like completely willing to open any email attachment they get from <laughs> any stranger on the internet. You're absolutely it's, right. Yeah, it's 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 really bizarre to me sometimes. So just just pretend that just just pretend that your computer is your home. And whenever you, and, and, and just, just to, to kind of think about, okay, emailing, uh, uh, like opening an email attachment is like letting in a stranger into your home. So do I really want to, to do that right now? Do I really want to do that? And don't get me wrong, in a lot of cases, these, these social engineering attacks, they are kind of sophisticated. Like these emails, they will pretend to come from DHL and to be honest, we all order stuff on Amazon all the time. So we probably also wouldn't be all too surprised about having like an email from DPD or DHL or any of the other uh, parcel companies in our email inbox. But uh, those companies would never have an attachment in the first place. They just don't. They, they give you the tracking link and the tracking number right within the application. Um, another aspect is try and keep your your um your system up to date as much as possible i know like windows update breaking machines and causing trouble is sort of a meme nowadays um and people kind of tend to get annoyed that windows update always tries to reboot your computer in the most inopportune moment possible <laughs> it's true but <laughs> the reality is is that yes there can be trouble with windows updates uh, updates from time to time, but those are incredibly rare. And a lot of the press sort of blows even the most uh, minor issue within Windows updates completely out of proportion and kind of scares people into, oh, maybe I should disable the Windows update. Um, no, don't. Um, just keep everything up to date as much as possible. Use... Um, antivirus software. Also, keep your antivirus software up to date. Um, and last but not least, try to be skeptical whenever there's something free on the internet or whenever someone uh, shows up in your email inbox and tries to click, tries to get you to click a certain link or to um, open a certain file attachment. So let's change tact here and talk about the MZSoft cybersecurity tools for managed service providers. Of course, MSPs, very multi-tenanted approach. They, they manage multiple clients, lots of devices across lots of different sites. So how does the MZSoft cybersecurity tools, how do you help MSPs to manage multiple clients? So at the core of our cloud platform is essentially um, a multi-tenant workspace model which goes pretty much hand in hand with how most MSPs will manage their clients. Um, these workspaces are essentially just an organizational structure that allows you to uh, manage users and systems within a certain workspace, which in most cases for MSPs will be a one-to-one -one relation to um, their clients. Or in some cases also different to different divisions within a certain client. Um, you allow them to um, 
create their own templates, both when it comes to policies, but also when it comes to reporting, and then apply these different te uh, templates on either the workspace or even down to like a group or a specific system level. So if you are dealing with different types of companies, you have like different requirements. One of them may be a little, a little bit more um, IT focused. So they may require like different sort of settings and defaults because they ask for a little bit more control over, over certain aspects, right? Then you can just create a template for, for those specifically and apply it to your IT clients while the other more restrictive uh, um, templates um, and policies get applied to um, all your other clients, for example. Um, as I mentioned um, earlier before, we do have quite extensive co-branding options, meaning you can essentially co-brand our software so instead of um, so instead of saying that the system is being protected by MZSoft anti malware, um, it can be your comp uh, your company name powered by MZSoft. Got it. Um, which is which is quite helpful because it kind of creates this personal touch, right? This personal connection between the client and you as, as an MSP, which in my experience is quite valuable. Um, and last but not least, we also provide like very sophisticated billing options, meaning your clients can be billed directly through us and you will just get your share of all the fees automatically. So you don't have to worry about uh, billing them yourself or doing anything in that regard. It's incredibly convenient for a lot of MSPs not to have to worry about um, these sorts of things. Um, when it comes to the software itself, it's incredibly sophisticated, and we we have tried to cover most of the uh, common cases um, when it comes to what features are we going to provide and which which we aren't. Um, to give you one idea, is we have a relay feature, for example, that means you can install the software on like a single client within a network. And this um, node can then be promoted to be a relay for all the communication, which helps a lot with network con uh, with with uplink co congestions. Imagine if you have like a large uh, company network, for example, uh, with like one thousand clients, and like all the all these clients will try to up uh, will try to download the updates at the same time. It's going to put quite a bit of pressure onto. Uh, onto your network links while you can simply promote um, one of these clients as a relay, for example, which just downloads all the updates once and then distributes these updates within the network to all the uh, other clients. It can also be used as kind of a pivot point in order to do like a fully automated deployment um, via Active Directory. So we do offer like a lot of different features and a lot of different uh, ways to make life for MSPs a lot easier when it comes to deployment, billing, and ultimately just managing the entire um, software and the entire ecosystem. Fantastic. And we'll include links to everything that Fabian has talked about in terms of resources, as well as links to the MCSoft partner program. One final question about the, uh, the managed service provider side of things. Uh, does the MCSoft software integrate into other MSP tools, uh, RMM tools, things like that? 
yes, we do have a quite tight integration to RMM tools like Syncro, for example, mm -hmm. but we are also offering integration with Tato. Um, we are constantly actually, actually right now we are uh, in the process of um, integrating with a couple of other RMMs, although I can't necessarily tell with who, who sure. those RMMs is going to be since it's not public yet. But yes, we are constantly looking to partner up with other RMM uh, companies and other RMM ecosystems. Uh, besides that, we also offer a public API. So... Um, if you want to build an integration to your RMM or to your own tools, you can do so quite easily. Our public API is actually so powerful um, that every single thing that you can do within our dashboard and with, uh, within uh, MyMCSoft, which is essentially our uh, cloud platform, you can automate and do via the API as well. So you can build incredibly deep and incredibly... Um, powerful integrations between different tools if you um, were inclined to, do, uh, inclined to do so. Yeah, absolutely. Really cool to hear that you're making that API available as well. Look, Fabian, I'm very respectful of your time. Uh, you have given above and beyond and shared so openly. Um, I just wanted to use the final bit of time we've got here together to talk about yourself. So you've talked previously, I've seen you in interviews and impressed about, you've got, it's fairly clear for people to hear that you've got an almost obsessive desire to help people decrypt these ransomwares, you know, fight against the bad guys. I guess my question is, how do you look after yourself when you're in the zone? How do you make sure that, you you know, you stay sane and look after yourself? Um, to be completely honest with you, I still haven't entirely figured that one out. Mm. I, it's, it's still, it's like the one puzzle I can't crack almost. Um, just recently, I actually got diagnosed with ADHD, um, which is like, yeah, I don't think I need to explain what ADHD sure. is. Um, but uh, what, and for the longest time, I never really could figure out what is wrong with me. Uh, but I would, ne I would have never thought that it would be ADHD. Um, but it makes a lot of sense. Like a lot of people, when they hear ADHD, they they think, oh yeah, these people can't concentrate and they can't focus and they're like constantly hyperactive. Um, and in a way I do have a lot of these traits, but it's usually not kitty, not now. Uh, it's usually not being sort of uh, sort of associated with people who are like very successful and sit on their computer for like, sometimes days on end trying to, to, to solve an issue. But um, in reality, that's like the very definition of it in a different way, because there's a certain um, sort of phenomenon within ADHD people, which is called hyperfocus. Um, that describes exactly that, that I, I do tend to completely forget that I'm currently working and I get like so, so um, sort of, almost enthralled into a problem that I can't like put it away and yeah. I just have to do it. And in a lot of ways, it's not, um, it's not very healthy in many aspects, but um, as I mentioned before, um, recently I got diagnosed with ADHD and I'm like taking steps to like kind of improve in that regard, like trying to figure out ways how, how I can, kind of directed towards like a more healthy approach, right? Um, 
maybe sort of figure out ways how I can. Kitty, hmm? do you want to cuddle? Yes, you do. So <laughs> We've been joined. <laughs> yes, yes. We've been joined by Emerald, actually. Um, so yeah, in, in, in that regard, I am taking or trying to take steps to, to improve. Um, but it's but it's sort of difficult. And uh, for the longest time, I always kind of grew up thinking that um, in a bizarre way, I was just lazy. That I had like so much trouble doing like the most menial things when in reality, my brain just works very, very different than anybody else's. Or like, I mean, obviously all our brains work very differently to anybody else's, right? Because we are all quite unique. Um, but on like the most fundamental level, my brain works differently than normal brains would do or like neurotypical brains would do. And it's, it's giving me like a lot of insight and a lot of things to think about. Yeah. And yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. We have talked about ADHD a little bit on this podcast before. Really appreciate you sharing openly. And I can tell you the feedback we've got from listeners to the show is, oh, wow, there's, there's somebody else uh, um, not just uh, coping, but thriving with this condition as well. We are all different. And, you know, what, what, some, what one person can see as like a detriment, uh, another person can use as a superpower as you have. So thank you for sharing uh, so openly. I also wanted to ask you, um, growing up in East Germany, as you did, what did your exposure to technology look like as, uh, as a younger man? Um... There wasn't really any exposure to technology, not within the GDR times, at least. At least not that I can remember. You have to sort of keep in mind, I was like six years old when the uh, reunification happened in Germany. So there aren't like a whole lot of memories in the first place. The first time I can remember interacting with a computer was when I was like maybe seven or eight years old. <laughs> um, and that was because... Um, since in a communist uh, system, all there's no private property and there are no companies. Essentially, everything is being owned by the state. Um, when the reunification happened, like all the companies that employed people, they all got dissolved. And there was obviously a lot of uh, unemployment back then. And one of the things people did to try and make all these new workers uh, more employable by, uh, yeah, by essentially Western companies was to um, do like a lot of e education programs. And my dad, who was about like 40 at the time, I think. So it's sort of a, an, age, uh, uh, an, an age range where it becomes like difficult to find a job if you um, become unemployed. Um, he was entered into one of these educational programs and he got to learn how to use computers and he got to learn how to program in basic back then. Um, that was, mind you, that was like 1992, 93. Um, in that range, like internet wasn't really a thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And one day I actually visited him while he was in school um, and that is how I first got to interact with computers. Um, and I was like completely uh, like taken right, right there. <laughs> Similar like, to me, yeah. I had to have a computer somehow. 
um, these these machines, they were like the coolest thing I have ever seen. <laughs> and they <laughs> and to be honest, they still are yeah. to me in in uh, a certain regards. So yeah, that is how I got to interact with them. But it wasn't like the ZX Spectrum or what they had in the GDR, for example, uh, back then. So, so I never got to interact with like old GDR technology, like East German technology. I only got into, into computers when um, the reunification already happened and we had like the x86 and IBM compatible um, PCs like the rest of the world had pretty much, right? Yeah, that's fascinating because I, like you, um, when I first came across computers, I think I must have been seven, eight years old, absolutely smitten. And it is something I often wonder where my life would have taken me if I hadn't have found that love for computers. I grew up with Atari and Commodore, things like that. And as we talk at the moment, Fabian, I'm sat in a room um, where I've got my retro computer museum and I've got lots of those old computers uh, sat around me. So we're very respectful of the history of computing. So fascinating to hear what it was like in uh, East Germany and uh, and the reunification after that, how things changed. Just before we go, I also want to ask you, I understand that like me, you're a little bit of a tabletop gamer. Uh, would that yes, be right? I yeah. Am. What are you playing right now? Um, right now, I'm actually like uh, in a rather large D&D campaign. Oh. Uh, with a couple of friends who are playing on like Roll20. Um, otherwise, I think my favorite game is probably Munchkin. Ah, I yes. don't know what it is, but Munchkin, I mean, honestly, um, it's it's a test of friendship almost. Like whether or not your friendship with a certain person can survive Munchkin. But <laughs> if it can, it's probably a friendship for life, right? Yes, it's, absolutely. It's, I, I, I just love that game so much. It's incredible. Oh, well, I hope that we get uh, an opportunity to play a tabletop game together at some point in the future, perhaps. But uh, Fabian, this has been an absolute pleasure for me. Uh, I know that people uh, listening will want to perhaps continue the conversation with you or reach out to you. I know you fly under the radar, but I also know that you're very active on uh, Twitter. So if people wanted to reach out to you, how could they find you? Um, yeah, they can just hit me up on Twitter. My Twitter handle is fvosa. And we will include that in the show notes as well. And if anybody wants to, any MSPs listening to this, want to find out more about MZSoft or indeed uh, build a relationship with MZSoft and your partner program, how what's the best way for them to contact MZSoft? Um, the best way is probably through our homepage. You can just go to www.mcsoft.com. And yeah, from there, you can simply um, uh, reach out to us via chat or you will find contact details there. Or you can just set up like a trial and check out our uh, platform and our products right away Wonderful. if you are inclined to do so. Well, for I know for a lot of listeners, this might be your first interaction with MZSoft. It may be a tool that you've not heard of before. Uh, I think you will realize that with uh, Fabian and the uh, the team behind it, this is a tool that you really should take seriously as part of your cyber security arsenal. Fabian, thank you so much for your time today. It has been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate it. Yeah, uh, it's my pleasure. 
Hey folks, Richard here. Thanks for listening today. I know you've got a ton of options for who you listen to nowadays, so I really appreciate your support. Do you have any feedback on this episode? Ideas for future guests? Tweet me at Tublog using the hashtag TubTalk. I respond to every tweet and really appreciate your feedback. Hey team, this is Richard again. Just one more thing before you take off, and that is MSP Insights. Now, every Tuesday, I share my thoughts on the business of IT with you, the managed service community. Thousands of managed service providers already subscribe to MSP Insights. It's easy to sign up, easy to cancel. MSP Insights is basically a short email from me every Tuesday without fail with advice on growing your IT business, plus cool resources I found, discovered, or started exploring that week. It's kind of like my diary of cool things and often includes articles or books I've read, tools I've discovered and events I think you'd be interested in, often sent to me by my friends and Tub Talk podcast guests. So if that sounds fun, a short tiny bite of MSP goodness every Tuesday and you'd like to try it out, just go to go.tub.co forward slash Tuesday. That's go.tub.co forward slash Tuesday. Drop in your email and you'll get the very next one. Thanks for listening.